0: The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. So today, we introduce our new series through the book of 1 Samuel. And uh, 1 Samuel records events that took place about a thousand years before before Christ was even born and about 500 years after uh, the Exodus period. So if you're... If those events are familiar to you, uh, that helps give it a little bit of context. So God rescued His people from Egypt from slavery and, and brought them into the promised land that He would give to His people. It's about 500 years before um, 1 Samuel, the events that, that happened there, and about thousand years before Jesus. Um, so God's people have been given freedom, just a little context of this book. They've been given freedom, and they were misusing God's freedom in, in huge ways. Uh, they were misusing it over and over again. And First Samuel is about about what it means to follow God as our leader, as our king, specifically in a time where we worship our own individual freedom. And not much has changed in that regard. Uh, it's one of our big cultural values of our time, is to, uh, is to follow, follow our heart, uh, to do what we want. Um, comments like, you're not the boss of me, happen a lot, and happened a lot during that time. Or, that's your belief. Uh, we all are entitled to our individual opinions. Or maybe, what gives you the right to tell me what to do? Now, if these are common, if you're hearing that these phrases are common for our time, they were very common uh, at this time as well. And they are dominant comments in our culture. Uh, To put it another way, everyone did what what they saw fit in their own eyes. Or even yet another way, everyone followed their heart. And actually, we're encouraged to do that in our time, to, to follow our heart, to, to look inside and to do what we, what we feel we should do. And what the Bible tells us and what all of history of mankind tells us, that when people do that, uh, what's left is chaos. Uh, what's left is a very ugly situations when people actually just follow their hearts. Those are actually the closing words of the book of Judges. In Judges 21, 25, the last verse is this. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the story of 1 Samuel actually picks up where where Judges leaves off. And so God's people, as they're, they're following this recorded history, they're reading that verse. And then the next history that they get is 1 Samuel chapter 1. And life is ugly when there is no king. Life is ugly when people follow their own hearts. There are stories and judges that we do not teach our kids in Sunday school, for good reason. It is graphic, it is ugly, it is scary, it is heartbreaking to see how people live when they don't follow God. But there's some irony in this as well, because during this time we learned that the people had no king. There's irony in that because they did have a king. Uh, Their king was to be the Lord God. He was the one who brought them out of slavery and into the promised land and gave them salvation. Uh, Yet they refused to honor him as king. They refused to obey him as king. The problem wasn't that God's people didn't have a leader. The problem was they didn't want the leader that they had. And so they wanted something else. They wanted something different. They wanted what everyone else had. They wanted a human king. They wanted someone who they could see, that could lead them and tell them what to do. They wanted to put themselves under the leadership of another person. And so here's what God does. Here's what happens. God grants them their desire. He gives them a king. And he sees their desire for a king as a rejection of his own rule. So he gives them what they want. And there are times when this appears to go really well. We see good things that happen in the life of King Saul and of King David. But there are times of just complete and utter failure and disobedience. And at times they feel that they are not really any better off with a human king than they were without one. And the people are wondering, will God ever send us someone who will lead us? and lead us in a good way, who will lead us faithfully in God's ways? Is, will there be somebody who will lead us with perfect love and truth and righteousness? And so the story of 1 Samuel causes us to look beyond the history of 1 Samuel. It, it causes us to look beyond the history of these earthly kings to a king that God would raise up to actually lead us, a righteous king who was full of love and wisdom and salvation. And so 1 Samuel causes us to stretch our eyes to see Jesus, God's anointed one, who would be born and raised and would be our forever king, who who claims that that rightful place as king over all, king of kings and lord of all. And so there's so much to learn from this story, Um, not only because it's true, but because it's the inspired word of God. And so when we go to this story of God's people, we, we should not just look at it through eyes of, like we're in school and learning history and thinking about events that happened a long time ago. We should read it with fresh eyes as God is wanting to stretch our hearts to see his work in our lives and in all of history. First Samuel enables us to see Jesus, even though his name is not named. But he is the Christ, which, which means the anointed. He is God's anointed one, God's Christ who would who would lead his people in truth. And, and it will show us what it means to follow God, to follow Jesus as king in an age today that worships personal freedom. And so let's begin. Let's begin in 1, Ch- 1 Samuel chapter 1. And like all uh, books of, of history, sometimes there will be Sundays where we read a good portion of scripture to get the, the, real, the real, real weight and grasp of, of what's happening. So today we're going to read chapter 1, uh, the first 20 verses. And so if you want to follow along with us, please, please do. First Samuel chapter 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah. The name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And the God of Israel, grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her, own, her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. This is God's word. Well, this story stirs some emotion. I imagine it, it, it stirs some personal emotion in you. And here, here are some emotions that have stirred in me. One, you hate Panina. You hate her. You hate this woman. You want her to lose big time. Will somebody put this woman in her place? She is just so special and so fertile and her husband looks at her a certain way, and she gets another kid like that, right? You just, you hate this woman. And you hope that through this story, something bad will come to her. Okay, maybe, maybe you don't feel that way. That's how I felt when I'm reading this story. Will someone put her in her place? You're not sure about Alcana. You're not really sure to know what to feel about him. Maybe he is just a a, a very sweet and attentive husband, maybe he 's an idiot you don't know you don 't know what kind of guy he is. Is he caring for his wife, or is he just missing it completely? Are her troubles just going far over his head? but here's something for sure your your heart breaks for Hannah she 's the hero you, you can see very early on she 's the one we should be looking at, and your heart is soft to her you you're brought into her pain um, you 're not sure what this story is about but It's important to to look at her, and you're brought into such a private mourning in the life of a woman that it's not even spoken out loud. She doesn't even whisper it, she only feels it. We know what is happening, but it's so painful, so grievous, so sad that it's not even mentioned. And the tone of this first chapter is really intentional, and it's really beautiful, even in, in its grief, It's really beautiful. It's meant to stir in us something, a longing. It's meant to stir in us longing to to join Hannah, to feel her pain, to to mourn with her and for her, to hope in her rescue. We want to see resolution. We want to see correction. We we, we long for hope. And we hope that as this story unfolds, something wonderful will happen to Hannah. And we, we see in very quick time that that we see resolution, we see that she has given an answer to her prayer. The way that this story begins makes us think that this story is going to be about a king. Because of the genealogy, a lot of times when we read stories like this and it starts out with a long list of genealogy, it's telling the story of a king. And here's his pedigree. So we see this very, uh, it seems very like stale and even uh, artificial genealogy, but then we're brought into this deep grieving of a, of a woman who's just very sad. Uh, It's the reason why every Disney movie starts with somebody losing their parents. (laughs) A hole is created. And we are meant to feel, how are they going to fill it? How is their heart going to be mended? How will this brokenness be fixed? And the rest of the story is going to tell us how. That's why those movies do that. And this is reality, and this is what is happening here. A hole is created deep in the heart of God's people, in the heart of Hannah, and in our heart as we want to see Hannah restored. And the question remains, how will it be fixed? Filled with what? What will she fill this pain with? What will we fill ours with? And that's the question. And First Samuel will tell us over time how this brokenness and this deep hole will be filled with God's promises to raise up a king who will lead their people in truth, and in love. But for now, we're just invited into this woman's deep pain. Hints are found for what will happen in this opening chapter. And with the time we have, I want to show you in this first 20 verses, embedded in this story, in this honest story of one woman's grief, is a powerful invitation to see God at work in the midst of our struggle. To see God at work in the midst of a struggle that is so deep and and creates such longing and such pain. They're found in these three responses that we see, responses to when we encounter struggle, responses to when we have longing. How do we respond when a deep hole is created in our life? How do you respond when you want something? And here we see those, those responses. Let's look at the first response. The first response could be to mock God. Do you mock God when you are waiting for him to respond in something in your life? This is what Panina does. Panina mocks God. We're told that year after year, they go up to the temple to worship God, and she does the same thing every single year. There, their husband would make an offering unto the Lord, and he would give food to his family, and he would give a food of, of blessing to, all, to his wives and, and all of their children. And Hannah would be one, or I'm sorry, Panina would be one of like looking around and saying, did all of my children get the food that they need to eat? It's so hard for me to keep track. There are just simply so many children, Hannah. Hannah, did all of your children get the food that they need? Oh, I'm sorry. You don't have any children. Hannah, that's an interesting name, Hannah. Hannah, it means the favored one. God's really favored you by giving you nothing. How ironic, Hannah, that you're... Oh, you know what my name, Panina, means? It means fruitful. It's <laughs> a true story. God, who is he paying attention to? The favored one who has nothing, or the fertile one, the fruitful one who has a bounty of children. God must love me. What is wrong with your God, Hannah. Has he forgotten you? How painful. Year after year. This is not a happy family. This is a broken, wounded family. This is a dysfunctional family. And this happened year after year, and Hannah suffered greatly. Barrenness had, had, had a tone of, of, of suffering in the Old Testament for God's people. The promise of a savior to uh, that would come to God's people uh, would would come from the offspring of a woman. The promise was to Abraham that from from actually to Adam and then reiterated to Abraham that a seed an offspring would come to God's people through the woman and this offspring would provide salvation and rescue to God's people and so childbearing and 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 being a woman who was able to have children was a sign of God's favor to that family without children there was no future hope there was no salvation barrenness was a personal tragedy for Hannah just as it is today for many women who are unable to have children but for Hannah and for God's people a long time ago it carried something different or additional it carried a sense of exclusion from the participation in God's purposes for his people Hannah felt left out as she should have felt because of the weight of what it meant. And Panina rubbed this in. She rubbed it in. Look at how left out you are. Look how forgotten you are from God. Pushed her buttons and pushed to the barriers. And Hannah did hear this, and it broke her. Hannah, did you hear? I'm expecting another child. God must love me. To mock God, to provoke or mock God, is to demand God to give an answer to us for what's happening in our life. That's what Panina is pushing Hannah to do. Make sense of this, Hannah. Make sense of this God. He must have forgotten you. He must love me more. To mock God is to say, God, because this is happening, I demand you to make sense of this for me. I demand you. I'm putting you in your place. How could you be loving? This doesn't seem loving. How could you care for me? This does not seem like you care for me. The temptation to mock God in the midst of struggle is so strong for her, it's strong for us, but Hannah does not give in. She does not mock God like Penina does. That's one of the responses that we have. Do you mock God? Are you tempted to mock God in the midst of your struggles when you're waiting on God to make up God's mind for Him or demand Him to do something to make sense? Hannah doesn't. We'll see what she does, but look at, let's look at another response that we may have. The second response could be to pity ourselves and to pity others. Do you pity yourself? Do you pity others when you are struggling? Elkanah comes to his dear wife and sees her in his, her grief and says to her the thing that every husband has said to his wife when he sees that she is suffering. He says, why are you so sad? Aren't I good enough for you? <laughs> Don't why do you need all of these things? Aren't I better than ten sons? It's really comical and because it's so accurate. It's so true, it's so honest. It's so realistic. Elcano wants Hannah to be not consumed with her suffering. Have you ever? Entered into that before fellows or even ladies in the suffering of another person. You you want them to be distracted from their suffering. And so you ask them or invite them to to turn their attention of of their suffering onto something else. Move on, in a sense. He wants her to show an interest in him more than an interest in her own suffering. I, I have an idea. Hannah, to take your distraction off of your own suffering, here's another thing that you can pay attention to. How about my suffering? How about me? Oh, while you are crying out to God and sad, I'm here as a, as a neglected husband. Would you pay attention to me? That will take your attention off of your own suffering. Self pity. Self pity is a is, is, it's motionless it's emotionless sadness, it's sadness that goes nowhere. It's just sitting and paying attention to our sadness or the sadness of somebody else. Misery loves company. And now Hannah is asking her, while you're being sad, can you just be sad for me as well and maybe we could be sad together and maybe that will help us. Hannah doesn't give in to this kind of response either. It's a temptation. It's a temptation we are waiting for God just to feel sad for us, to feel sad for others. Here Hannah shows herself to be A powerful example to every woman and man and child who desires to have a faithful response to God in the midst of struggle Hannah directs all of her pain all of her grief into prayer this is the next response as we see this response in Hannah to pray is your response to the suffering in your life one of a pouring out to God In prayer do you pray we know that she prayed we know that she prayed but that is not the biggest point in this response the biggest point is is trying to figure out but why did she pray she was driven to prayer one of the reasons we don't pray is because we feel that we don't need to we can handle it without God we can handle it without God by, by mocking God, putting Him in His place and saying, there, there God, I fixed the problem, you're the problem. Problem solved, move on. Or we try to fix our suffering by, by just saying that bad things happen and I deserve just to be miserable right now. And so in a way, we are, we are, we are, we are just comforting ourselves by, by just being in the company of miserable people. Hannah did not did not have that option to do nothing. She was driven to despair. She was driven to anxiety, driven to anguish of her soul so that there was nothing left for her to do but to pour out herself to God. Why did she pray? We have to see this. She had to pray because she was driven to it. She had no other option. God used the scorn of Penina, God used the pity of Elkanah and the pain of her own barrenness to drive her into the loving arms of God. Eli says, are you drunk? Hannah replies, I'm not drunk. I'm pouring myself out. I have nothing else to do. I'm pouring myself out to God. Hannah's story at least for me, it makes me a little uneasy. Because it challenges the myth of what the culture says that no one can make you feel a certain way without their, without your permission. This is simply not true. People do wicked things. People do evil things. We are not in complete control of our lives. We are not the master of our universe. Bad things happen, and as a result of those things, it brings us into pain. And a dominant uh, value of our culture says, no one can hurt you you unless you are weak. No one can make you feel sad unless you give them permission. No one can break you, right? Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never harm me. What person came up with that? Words wound us. We carry wounds, with our, words, wounds that come from words with, our, with us our whole lives. Even knowing that God loves us, there are things that are done to us that are so painful. The wickedness of others does harm us. And at times, the wounds that are inflicted upon us are completely out of our control. We see a woman in Hannah. Where this is true we see wickedness that is inflicted on her that was completely out of her control and she's driven to God beyond her control following God is not a technique that you and I need to master it is not a formula of carefully executed spiritual activities that we follow following God trusting in him is a pouring out of our need to him. It is a pouring out of our soul for a cry to help. What keeps us from doing this is our believing in a cultural, the cultural myth that says, you don't need God. You can figure out whatever, th- whatever thing you are struggling with, you can figure out how to fix it. But following Jesus as king, following God, is a- a- admitting, I have nowhere to go. Help me. Only weak people say that. Only sad and lonely people say that. Hannah says, I'm actually driven to it. And God is saying something that we need to come to terms with here. It's very uneasy. It doesn't fit well with our our culture's mentality or even a a modern evangelical mentality. God is saying, I closed your womb. And I'm the one that will open it. And I used Panina to drive you, and I used your husband to drive you to me. We we read these words, and we have to come to terms with what's happening here. Hannah's not the first barren woman in Scripture, and she finds herself in the fellowship of barren women. She finds herself in the fellowship of emptiness, and it's often in the moments just like this where new chapters and new beginnings happen for God's people. Isn't that so true? If you've, if you've read your Bible uh, to any, any great length, you will come to stories, and even stories that you've never read, and if the opening line is, there once was a woman who had no children, you're thinking, that girl's going to have a baby. <laughs> you're reading stories that says, there once was a man who had a daughter who was dying, you're thinking, God's going to save that daughter. There once was a man who was paralyzed from birth, you're thinking, that man's going to walk any minute now. Isn't that true? God seems to know something about brokenness, about weakness that you and I don't know because it's in those moments he seems to do his best work. God creates out of nothing. He speaks word into barrenness and he says, let there be light and light appears. He commands light into the darkness and darkness flees. He breathes into darkness the lungs of creatures, and they come alive. God loves to take things that are nothing and make them beautiful. If you realize that you have nothing, you are a good candidate for the face of God to shine on you. This is where God loves to start new chapters. This is where he loves to create new beginnings. This is where he loves to bring life. God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. And God responds to the hopeless prayers of his people. And we see in Hannah that we must be driven to this. We must come in humility, recognizing that we are people not in control of our own destinies. We are not people that follow this myth that no one can harm us. No one can hurt us. We have to believe that bad things happen. And yet God is still working. He has not forgotten. Hannah's prayers are cries of faith. Her prayer, uh, her prayer arises from a belief that God is a father who is able and willing and good enough to respond. Our hopelessness and our helplessness are are no barrier to his work. Hannah becomes pregnant. We know know what happens, and I'm so glad that the writer of this this history shows us that very quickly. He doesn't doesn't want us to be in too much suspense. He wants to unfold the story of how God will respond to the the burdens of his people, but here he wants to get very quick to how he's going to respond to Hannah's, Hannah's pain. Just like that. Whatever medical reasons that caused Hannah's infer- infertility, we're told that ultimately it was God who had closed her womb. When she became pregnant, we are told that it was not by immaculate conception. Elkanah played a significant role. You follow, you follow what I'm saying? Okay. We know that it was, Elkanah played a, a significant biological role but we know that it was God who opened her wound, her, her womb. Whatever medical reasons that contribute to your anxiety, God is wanting to use it to drive you to Him. Whatever dysfunctional features or characteristics that contributed to your loss of relationship with someone you love, God is using that to drive you to him. What, whatever wickedness at the hands of somebody that we could not control uh, inflicts us and changes our life forever, God is using that to drive you to see that he is working in your life. Ultimately, it was God who caused the closing of her womb and the opening of it so that she could know him better. The key is, is in this passage is, well, what do we do with that? What do we do with that information? God wants us to know there are many responses we may have to the circumstances of life, but he opposes the proud and he, gives, he, he exalts the humble. That those who mock God or pity themselves... He he ignores. He he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the ones who cry out to God for mercy. And in doing so, they're saying, I have nothing but you. I am driven to despair. I am driven to anxiety. I am driven to helplessness. God, you are my hope. Help me. God says, now you're right where I want you. We must see whatever response we have, that we, we, we learn that God is working in ways that we cannot see. Whatever is going on in your life, God is working in ways that you cannot see. He has yet to reveal the purpose for this struggle in your life. Just like Hannah, would you find yourself in Hannah's story? Would you see your own brokenness in Hannah's story and and remind yourself, okay, God is doing something wonderful. He is creating new beginnings out of this pain, but I don't need to know exactly what. I just need to know that he is working in ways that I cannot see. And lastly, that God will always bring salvation to his people. God will raise up a Savior, a King, who will lead his people in truth in love and justice and righteousness. He will be faithful to everything he has promised to his people. He will do it in the time that, he, that is right and good and perfect. That's what First Samuel is about. We're going to see this as the pages unfold in this story. We're going to see that God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble, that he's working in ways that we can't even understand, and that he will save us. Would you apply those things to your life right now? We see this in the cross of God's anointed, of the Christ, the anointed one, that would come eventually through the seed of a woman in Jesus Christ who was born We would see this. We would see that God opposes the proud but exalts the humble. We see that Christ humbled himself to the point of death and died for his enemies and God gave him the name above every other name and exalted him to the highest place and calls him king who is seated on the throne. We see that he's working. We look at the cross and we see Christ crucified and where people mocked God and even mocked him, he knew that God was working in ways that he could not comprehend. And we believe that Easter would come, that the crucifixion was painful, that he'd be buried in the ground, but we knew that he would resurrect from the grave, that he would rise from death, defeating death and sin. We know that he will bring salvation, and his resurrection shows us that he will bring salvation to us. And what he asks of us is to trust him. What he asks of you is to trust in him. Hannah asks, and the Lord gives. He closes and opens her womb. He answers prayers. He does not always give us exactly what we ask for. For there are people who are still struggling today. There are women who are still struggling today with infertility, desiring to have children. But he responds to our prayers in his love and according to his wisdom. And in ways that we can't fully comprehend, but always in ways that are good. There's more going on in this passage, for it is a foretaste of what is to come in the story. Stretch your eyes to see God faithful. He's providing us salvation. Let's pray.